This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Tonight we'll hear about three large companies – AGL, Australian Gas Light, and Alinta Energy. The third company is Flow, which is a Brookfield company. Now, AGL supplies coal-fired power, and its CEO, Andy Vasey, told the Disruption and Energy Conference I went to that they plan to stay in coal-fired power until 2050. 80% of AGL's energy comes from coal at Bayswater and Liddell in New South Wales and Loyang A in Victoria. They want to have a clean, green image and also they have invested in renewable energy. They talk about climate action, but then Camden gas wells outside Sydney are leaking methane. And we'll hear from a rally outside the AGM of AGL, where residents of Camden talk about their nosebleeds and their anxiety. Then Dr Helen Redmond will tell us exactly why they should be very anxious and we should be clear that coal seam gas is unhealthy, both locally and for the climate change it creates. If AGL is serious about climate action, I think it needs an exit plan from fossil fuels within the decade. To find out how a company could exit smoothly, we'll get a rare glimpse into the practical thinking of a coal-fired power plant owner. This is Alinta. The CEO, Jeff Dimery, talks to the Disruption and Energy Conference about his experience as Alinta closed its energy business at Port Augusta. Lastly, Lisa McLean shows how big buildings and precincts can produce their own energy and become much more climate friendly. So we'll go from AGL and the rally outside to protest about their bad practice and urge them to do better. Then we'll hear from Alinta how to do it and their lessons that they learned are getting out of Port Augusta and the third one is more futuristic and you know a good image of how to do it much better with the sustainable energy in big buildings and precincts from Lisa McLean. So here we are at Angel Place in Sydney. The AGM for AGL Gas is inside and the shareholders are making their way in. About 200 people are outside with brightly coloured placards, the knitting nanas with their yellow knitting saying stop coal seam gas are all outside and it's a very friendly atmosphere. The Ecopella choir is singing and we receive a welcome to country from Charles Madden. His name familiarly is Chica. 
I'd like to take this opportunity this morning to extend a warm and sincere welcome to any of my Aboriginal brothers and sisters, non-Aboriginal brothers and sisters who may have travelled here on the Gadigal land. We have any brothers and sisters from the Torres Strait or further afar across the seas. Welcome. Welcome to Gadigal land. Aboriginal land. The Gadigal clan is one of 29 that makes up the Eora Nation. The Eora Nation is bordered by three distinctive landmarks. We have the Orkney River to the north, the Pen to the west, and the Georges River to the south. Those three rivers form the boundaries of the Eora Nation. Folks, if you've travelled across this great city of ours this morning, the state or this great country, welcome. Welcome to Gadigal land. Enjoy your stay. Have a safe and trouble-free trip home. Once again, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, boys. Enjoy the morning, and don't forget to lock the gates. Pip Hinman was the MC. She's been working on calcium gas for a long time and she drew our attention to the plight of people in Camden which is just a little way out of Sydney where new housing has been put up and a lot of people are starting to suffer the bad effects from leaking methane from the calcium gas drilling. Climate change has been driven by reckless profit-hungry organisations such as AGL with the support of compliant governments such as Mike Bez. ATL is Australia's number one fossil fuel polluter, which is why we are here outside their AGM today. We're here to tell AGL that it won't get away with its dirty secrets. We're here on behalf of the 99% that want clean energy, clean water and clean air. to be green. We know it's up to its eyeballs in the dirty fossil fuel energy business. It owns three of Australia's eight most polluting coal-fired power stations. It runs New South Wales' major unconventional gas project in Camden, southwest Sydney. The science is saying we've got to keep carbon out of the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is a major driver of dangerous climate change. AGL knows this, but it's continuing to produce its dirty fossil fuels. It says it will keep burning coal till 2050, and it will frack and camp until 2023. This is environmental and social vandalism on a grand scale. Joseph Zane Zikulu is a member of 350.org and he's one of the Pacific warriors who uh, sailed their boats out in Newcastle Harbour and are here to draw our attention to the effect of our coal burning and our coal exports on the Pacific Island neighbours. A lot of the time here when I come and speak to these things is about telling the story of myself and telling the story of my family and these are things that are usually overlooked because they're people that are across the world on the other side of the ocean separated by sea and you don't usually see that damage that's happening to them but it's something that's happening now and it's something that's drastic and if things don't change within the next decade for the Pacific then the Pacific doesn't have 10 years to wait for a transition plan I mean we don't have to well, we can't wait till 2050 we don't even have 10 years to wait um, 
in Paris, Australia agreed to, to try and limit global warming to 2 degrees and we pushed 1.5 because 1.5 is really what is needed for the Pacific to stay alive. If we go beyond 1.5 and islands like Kiribati, Tuvalu, the Marshall Islands, these places won't exist anymore in the next 10 years and it's, it's not really a question for us about about will we have jobs in 10 years or will we have places to live? It's about the survival of a whole entire nation of people, of the history of people that have been living on these islands for tens and thousands of years. And that's really what this is for us. It's about preservation, it's about survival. So we're going in here to ask AGL if there is a plan and if they see the importance of that, because there are Pacific communities here in Australia too, and they care about this. Dr. Helen Redmond is with Doctors for the Environment. Listen carefully to all the details. It's rather scientific, but it gives you very good detailed the background and the research behind why we should not be drilling for any more gas. It's very dangerous, both for local people and for the climate. Doctors for the Environment Australia has for years now held the view that current assessment, monitoring and regulation of the unconventional gas industry in Australia are inadequate to protect health, of current and future generations. We hold the position that the risks are so potentially serious, so difficult to manage, so likely to be long-lived, that any further development of the industry in Australia has to be seen as unwise and unhealthy. There is still much unknown about health impacts, but in the last few years there has been an explosion in peer-reviewed research, mostly coming from the US, where there are huge gas fields. In the US there are 15 million people who live within one mile of a gas well. That's an enormous population. So population health studies have been possible over there and what is emerging is a correlation between proximity and density of wells and negative public health impacts. Studies report negative birth outcomes, low birth weight, preterm, birth defects. Another finds higher well density associated with increased cardiac and neurological hospital admissions. In another, gas activity near patient homes was associated with increased asthma attacks of all severities. An analysis of gas and air pollution papers published in the last five years show that the vast majority report increased atmospheric concentrations of pollutants. These air pollutants include methane, hydrocarbons and volatile organic compounds, also known as VOCs. They can be released during drilling, methane separation from venting of wells, from holding tanks, holding ponds, compressors, diesel trucks and machinery. Benzene is a VOC, part of the BTEX group, and it's a class one, group one carcinogen, so there's no safe level of exposure. Benzene exposure occurs also from cigarette smoke, traffic fumes, aircraft fumes and so on. So we all get exposed to some extent, but the effects are dose dependent. So the more you get, the more likely you are to develop cancer, leukemia, blood disorders, or immune deficits. In particular, we worry about the gas workers and also the children, pregnant women, and elderly or immunocompromised who live close to these developments. 
Natural gas is largely all methane. It's a colourless, odourless gas, and at concentrations of over 5%, it's flammable. At concentrations over 15%, it can reduce blood oxygen levels and cause asphyxiation. In open air, levels are too low to cause any direct impact on health. But during gas extraction, methane may leak out of equipment, pipes, or through natural formations such as the ground and waterways. We call these fugitive emissions, and they can affect health in two ways. Firstly, the methane and VOCs mix with diesel pollution, and in the presence of heat and sunlight, they create ground-level ozone. Ozone affects even healthy lungs, causing inflammation, reduced lung function, and increased respiratory symptoms. Exposure to ozone is linked to increase in death rates, hospital admissions, and emergency department attendance, mainly for breathing problems. Asthmatics are particularly vulnerable. Secondly, methane is a potent greenhouse gas, and climate change is widely acknowledged by the greatest medical journals and practitioners to be the greatest global health threat we face this century. Studies of fugitive emissions show that the amount of gas leakage is in the order of 1, or five, one to 5%, but you only need between 2 and 4% to wipe out any benefit gas has over coal in terms of climate impact. At the recent COAG meeting in August of energy ministers, Frydenberg emphasised the growing importance of gas as a transitional fuel. Where's he been for the last 30 years? We've missed the boat on that one. Yeah, I did too. He did. Uh, all states, including New South Wales, committed to expanding onshore gas extraction. But they're dreaming. We've proved over and over again communities won't let that happen. Will you? <laughs> and doctors won't let it happen either. Yeah. <laughs> Um, this is a deeply unpopular industry, and for very good reason. So with climate change upon us, we don't have time for a transition fuel, no, but nor do we need one. We have cleaner and healthier alternatives right now. The risks are so potentially serious, so difficult to manage, and so likely to be long-lived that any further development of the unconventional gas industry in this country is unwise and unhealthy. Thank you. Melinda Wilson spoke about her experiences living at Camden and the effect on her children, who were both with her there, holding up banners. Imagine purchasing a brand new home only to discover after moving in that there are coal seam gas wells 200 metres from your home. This is the reality families face when buying homes in Spring Farm. Numerous families in Spring Farm have 19 wells within two kilometres of their home. Everywhere else in New South Wales, coal seam gas have to be two kilometres away from residential areas. So this leads me to question why there is a ban everywhere else in the state but AGL's wells in Camden are exempt from these laws. Is it because Lancome is selling the majority of these homes? Lancome is owned by the New South Wales State Government. They are selling homes to families in Spring Farm without telling them that there are coal seam gas wells in the area. And some have been drilled horizontally under their homes. When we door knocked in Spring Farm, None of the residents 
we spoke with had any idea about the coal seam gas wells within walking distance from their homes, and none had been told about AGL's wells before purchasing their homes. A lot of these new home buyers and builders are Indigenous Australians who have received special loans which don't allow the loan holder to sell or move out of their home for a minimum of 12 months. AGL's recent leak detection report showed that 19, yep, 19 of their coal seam gas wells remain leaking. These Camden residents should not have to put up with leaking wells around their homes and schools. Families living in close proximity to coal seam gas wells in Camden are suffering health effects, such as explosive nosebleeds that spurt out and hit the wall like an artery for up to 20 minutes, chronic headaches, hay fever-like symptoms and breathing difficulties, as well as hair loss. Last year, AGL were fined 15000 for breaching their environmental protection licence when methane leaked for over an hour from a gas well at Spring Farm. This year's flooding of Camden saw coal seam gas infrastructure and holding tanks floating in the Nepean River. Community members still want to know what was in the storage tanks and how much emptied into the Nepean River. AGL still can't answer that question. The community still doesn't know. It's all in the Nepean River. Over 10,000 people have signed the change petition against coal seam gas in Camden. AGL has repeatedly refused to meet with the community to accept this petition. This demonstrates AGL's lack of integrity in its community consultation with Camden residents. Camden is the largest growth centre in Sydney. The New South Wales Department of Planning has approved 35,000 new homes to be built within 20 metres of AGL's existing coal seam gas wells. This is a health epidemic in the making. The people of southwestern Sydney should not be used as guinea pigs in a coal seam gas experiment. The serious health effects relating to coal seam gas must be acknowledged by AGL and our government. AGL's plan to close all coal seam gas wells in Camden by 2023 is not acceptable. Our children deserve a future where their water and air is clean. They deserve a future free from illness. They don't deserve seven more years of health effects caused by AGL and the Camden Gas Project. Julie Lyford is from Gloucester. Now they had a win at Gloucester and so AGL had to remove all its gas wells and there's still maybe an issue of leaking there. But Julie Lyford is lending her energy to this group of people now at Camden who, who, are, who are fighting off AGL and trying to get people to realise how very dangerous this is and what a very big fight we have on our hands. 20 years ago, if you were to see a movie of this or see this on the news, 20 years ago, you would not believe that this was happening today because our laws were a lot stronger and we wouldn't have allowed people to get sick like in Camden or in the coal seam gas fields. What is happening is a travesty and this company and the state governments are culpable. I've said this many times before. Culpability is knowing that you're doing harm. If you know you're doing harm, you are culpable. We have give them, given them all of the evidence. They know they are culpable. And someday, hopefully when ecocide becomes a law, they will be found severely wanting. So. 
Gloucester supports Camden. The people in this building, we have it on extremely credible sources from one of the best investment uh, companies in Australia, that the AGL folly, where government and industry lied for seven years on the viability of that gas field, cost the shareholders $1.2 billion. $1.2 billion. That is before the year of remediation of shutting down the coal seam gas wells that, by the way, we've found out that nobody really monitors once they've been shut down with 1.5 metres of dirt on the top. So let's talk about well integrity. Well, the people of Camden know about well integrity. So that's $1.2 billion of shareholders' money in that room down the toilet. Those government and industry lies are culpable. Last night we had a meeting because we now face Rocky Hill. Thanks, Colin, with this wonderful sign. So we've now got a proposed coal mine less than 900 metres from a housing estate and less than five, uh, sorry, yeah, and less than five kilometres from our hospital, schools, aged care. 3,000 people will be directly impacted by this coal mine that will then go around the town. So what have we learned and what do I want to impart to you today? The biggest lesson we have learned is that the government only looks at the approvals processes from the industry perspective. Unless you take it to them, unless you show through your own experts and your own research why things shouldn't happen, sadly, all they do is look at what they can coddle up through some of their own experts or paid experts, and the industry uses their own paid experts. There is no independence. So communities have become very skilled at looking at what's going on behind the scenes. You've just seen a very high-profile federal minister leave his wonderful post in federal government and become the Queensland Resources Council person. So I've got another term for you. It's not the revolving door, it's the revolting door. Because these people are revolting. What they're doing by jumping from government and into industry and industry into government is a disgrace. So we support Camden, we will fight Rocky Hill, we're meeting with the ministers again. We are saying to them in the EPA, even though they say, look, we can't really do too much until you bring it to us. They are a regulatory authority, but you need to bring your problems to them. They're not out there looking at them for you. So you've got to keep digging and, and getting that information to them, but use the press, use the media, and don't be frightened of the bullies. Now, I'm going to tell you something else. So we've now got a bit of a police file happening in Gloucester because... Some of us have been told to check our cars before we get into them. And the other day, when I was talking to a member of a group called Advance Gloucester, which um, an AGL spokesperson said to us 12 months ago, would you like us to ask them to tone it down? That's been publicised. So I got told that I needed to moderate my behaviour. I then got told, and excuse the swearing because there's kids here, that the Dinning Nanas are really pissing people off. And 
I said, well, I better not tell them that because it'll swell their ranks by at least a thousand. <laughs> you don't tell good women that that's happening. But the final thing was, I said, you've put a smear campaign against me and my family. You know, this is a disgrace what you're doing. And the answer back was, you're lucky, Julie. We kept the more vicious and dangerous attack dogs on a short leash. It could have been a lot worse. Now, I'm telling you this because I am so sick of the corporate government and the little people that they put in our communities. You've all got them in your communities. They're a little group that are pro, pro, pro. Dig a bit deeper and see who's funding them because I can tell you it's industry and government's not far behind giving them a hand up either. But I am so angry about what's been said to me. I walked straight up to the police station, reported it, and they are keeping a file. Nothing's going to happen yet. But I'm so angry that people are being bullied and pushed around and don't let it happen to you. And if it's happening to you, tell someone, report it to the police. Make sure. And I know other things are happening in communities too. So. Um, yeah, you will. You will get there, and everybody will help you. And when kids are being harmed, and when good people stand by and do nothing, silence is consent. Silence is consent. And you know, Melinda, good on you. You're a champion, and you will get there. We will hold them culpable.
by John Tam. I'm Andy. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Climate Action Show. Vivian attended a conference in Sydney about renewable energy and the next short item is a bit of a coop. It is the CEO of energy company Alinta telling people in the industry how they closed down their coal-fired power plant at Port Augusta. There are quite a few lessons to learn, especially for those of us who want to see Hazelwood and then all the others' dominoes falling out, falling, but without massive distress and damage to the workers and communities. It has to be managed. It has to be a managed transition, as he says. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show from Radio 3CR. The next speaker is Jeff Dimery. I heard him speak at the Disruption and Energy Conference. He's the CEO of Alinta Energy, and they recently closed down their power plant, coal-fired power plant and coal mine in near Port Augusta. He talks to us about the lessons he's learned from that. He was talking to people in industry, and it gives us some insights into how we might go forward, especially for companies in the Latrobe Valley. We need them to get out of coal-fired power fairly soon. Certainly, I joined Alinta uh, five and a half years ago. Before that, I'd spent uh, around about 16 years at AGL. And uh, when I did join Alinta, I think it's fair to say the, asset, uh, the assets, the, the business itself, was in quite a bit of distress. Um, and we were confronted with a bit of a transformational program. I'm very pleased to say, uh, five and a half years later, we feel like we've well and truly completed that phase of, of the cycle, and we're now looking for some wonderful growth opportunities, which will segue nicely into today's discussion. Most importantly, rather than talk about all the assets we have uh, scattered over the map there of Australia and New Zealand, let me focus today on the one that we no longer have. Uh, and that's the one with the big red cross through it down the bottom there, uh, which is uh, both the Northern and Playford coal-fired power stations at Port Augusta in South Australia called the Flinders Assets and the associated coal mine uh, at Lee Creek uh, that we also uh, previously used to own. What I do want to do is just cover, if you like, the barriers to exit. It's not an easy decision to make to, to back out of uh, baseload generation. I really want to drill down into who pays the bill and why, and then talk about, I guess I've got here a soft landing, 
it is possible. It's not what we've seen in South Australia, but there should be some key learnings from that. Um, and then talk about what life looks like, uh, certainly from a Linter's perspective, as we get to the uh, low emissions future. So um, there have been lots of headlines out there, uh, and there are quite a few loud voices around. Um, I guess there are a lot of vested interests in the marketplace, and, and so that's playing out. Um, from our perspective, uh, look, uh, just to be upfront, we had absolutely zero government support or assistance in making the decision to close. This was a decision that we made as a business, our shareholders made, our management team made on the basis of economics, and we think that sets the foundation for the way forward, um, rather than companies putting their hand up to say government should pay to, to close coal-fired power stations. My view is, um, is they already pay, um, and uh, we'll get to that in a moment. But there's no doubt, as the market played out in South Australia, there was a lot of pressure on us uh, to close our power station. Apart from the various lobby groups who are out there that don't like coal-fired power station, um, look, the reality is this market will continue to rely on coal generation for some time to come. Um, having said that, what we need are smooth transitions to move our way, uh, ourselves away from that. It's not going to happen overnight, but if planned correctly, uh, it can be done in a, in a smooth way over a period of time. So uh, let me talk for a moment about site restoration and rehabilitation. Uh, certainly from um, Alinta's perspective uh, in, in the first instance, We've spent around about $200 million closing our, uh, our coal-fired power station. Um, how is that made up? Uh, in our case, um, we had three key buckets of cost, if you like, uh, for the closure program. Firstly, uh, the cost, the obvious costs associated with site rehabilitation, restoration, remediation programs, meeting our compliances under EPA. Um, that's quite expensive. Um, to put that into perspective, and, and I guess this may surprise you, but that was around about a third of the total cost of that 200 million, slightly more, but thereabouts. The, the second piece of large uh, cost associated with the closure program for us uh, was around employee entitlements, and this will be consistent right across the industry. We very much have an ageing workforce out there in the energy industry, and so um, given that our power station had previously been in a prior life, been owned by a government, um, the same as the ones in New South Wales and Victoria, uh, a number of those employees have been there a long time and they're on very lucrative um, superannuation schemes and the like and had very favourable redundancy clauses in their contracts and so that become a very expensive exercise, taking up about a third of the cost. And then there's the hidden cost that um, people are probably not aware of, and that's the cost associated with changing out your position. So what generators do is they forward sell contracts for electricity to shore up their revenue into the marketplace. And we have laws here in Australia that dictate that uh, things like insider trading are prohibited uh, and against the law. And so when an organisation like ours makes a decision to close, we need to inform the market. If we go out and front run that in the market and buy back contracts and buy up contracts uh, and then make the decision to close, 
then uh, obviously there are going to be a lot of disgruntled, uninformed counterparties that were trading with you in the lead-up to that, and I'm sure they're going to want to take action. So you've got to be very careful not to, not to do that. And so therefore you find yourself in an environment where you're out there, you're telling the market that there's going to be less capacity in that market, you've sold in an oversupplied market and you need to buy back in a much tighter market and so you're buying at a higher price than you sold at and, uh, and that can become very, very costly and in our case that represented about a third of the closure cost. Um, we anticipated that would happen. In fact, we were pleasantly surprised. I think that the market really didn't believe we were going to, going to close when we said we were. And it wasn't until quite late in the piece where the market got very tight after we bought a lot of the contracts that it started to react. So whilst it was a third of our cost, it could have been much higher. And I guess that's one of the advantages of going first because I think next time someone announces they're closing, you'll see an immediate reaction rather than a delayed reaction from the marketplace. I want to make a point here about um, rehabilitation costs. Um, it's really interesting when you look at the financial statements of the owners of the Latrobe Valley uh, coal-fired power stations and how much they've provisioned for the closure uh, of those mines. And I think uh, to say that they're understated, I mean, Hazelwood, $15 million. Come on, give me a break. Um, Loyang, $15 million. Have you guys seen the hole in the ground there in, in, in the Latrobe Valley? That, that's just a nonsense look, and obviously they have started to adjust those numbers, but um, you know our view is they're still grossly, grossly understated. At Alinta, I think it's fair to say uh, that we had an excellent relationship with our workforce. We measure engagement, and uh, I know Channel 9 were very disgruntled when they did the doorstop of our employees when they were walking out on the final day and they asked them what they thought of the company. And they couldn't get anyone to say they hated us and we were bad guys. What they said was they fully understood why we closed. It was on commercial grounds um, because we'd been educating them the whole way through as to what our cost structures were, what the pool price was doing. We communicated with them regularly uh, and we were on really good terms. Um, let me contrast that. I mean, at the moment I read in the paper pretty much every other day that the, uh, the ETU um, and the uh, CFMEU uh, are on a protracted uh, dispute with, with their employer at AGL. Um, and so I think uh, it's going to be very difficult for a company like AGL, if, if they're having trouble with the union while they're operating, it's going to be even more difficult when you start to have discussions with them around a, a timetable for closure. So that third cost of employee cost uh, may go up. And then there's a cost that we didn't confront because we had happy employees, which is the cost of, of disruption. It's one thing to plan when you're going to close, but if your plant's not operating in the lead up to that and you've sold contracts, again, that could be very costly. So I guess I'm, I'm really what I'm doing here is trying to highlight that there are uh, quite a big dilemma for, for companies. It's not a straightforward thing to say you're going to close and then move through to, to the closure. Um, and if you don't have your employees on site, that will be incrementally harder again, which wasn't the case in, in our situation. Greer, 
Later in the conference, Vivian met Lisa McLean from Flow. You'll find it interesting how they are building new houses with a very low impact on the environment. We're speaking to Lisa McLean from Flow, which is a bookfield company. They're into infrastructure, and I'm at a conference in Sydney called Disruption and the Energy Industry, which you might think is rather obscure, but it's actually fascinating. So welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show, Lisa. Tell us a little bit about you. Thank you very much. Um, well, I work for Flow Systems, which is a Brookfield company, and we are a disruptor, so we are a sustainable multi-utility, um, looking at how we can provide local generation, local energy and also recycle local water and provide services within precincts and communities that reduce carbon. In fact, my title is Executive Manager Climate Positive, and we've set ourselves that aspiration because we're hoping that the communities that we provide utility infrastructure for can be climate positive so they can generate more energy and water than they use in a year. And my background before working for Flow is um, I have worked for the Clinton Climate Initiative, so a very successful partnership between Clinton Climate Initiative and the C40 cities to look at programs and um, approaches that can reduce carbon in, our, as we know, our biggest emitters around the world, which are our cities. So um, now I'm working for Flow and the idea is that we can take a lot of those learnings internationally into how we approach infrastructure. Thank you. Well, we just heard a very good talk by uh, Daniel Hilson from your company, and I'd like you to describe for the listeners two projects which he talked about which have climate awareness sort of at the centre. I could see that, even though this audience is perhaps not that interested in climate awareness, but the listeners are. And uh, we know that big cities need to be resilient. We saw what happened in New York with the cyclone Sandy and uh, hospitals were flooded and had to evacuate patients by boat, you know, it, it, you need to be resilient now with the future intense weather, the things that will happen. Therefore, this forces us to use water and energy more efficiently. And I think this is the, really the main message I got from the talk. So can you tell us about the big uh, building, describe it and tell us what the aspects of it are called Central Park in Sydney is the first one? Yes, yeah, sure. So I think we agree with you absolutely that um, we need to be more resilient. And I think there's two approaches to that. One is what are we doing to reduce carbon emissions globally as governments and businesses and communities and because that's going to mitigate extreme weather events and, and, and um, look after our planet and secondly how are we creating infrastructure and businesses that are sensitive to um, those needs and demands and the changing weather events. So Central Park is one project which has won a lot of international and national acclaim. Um, it's a precinct that used to be an old brewery. Flow Systems and Brookfield own the water and energy systems there and we recycle uh, 50%, 100% of the water is recycled and, it's, and we provide 50% of the daily water needs for the community there and so it's hardwired recycled water purified to the highest Australian standards is pumped back into the apartments and shops for clothes washing, uh, toilet flushing and irrigation and we also use water there for um, uh, cooling towers and then we've got an embedded energy network there which is providing heating and cooling for the for the entire precinct and the efficiencies are phenomenal.
phenomenal. I mean, they're 98% more efficient than having um, coal-fired power plant producing that energy. So we know that locally generated infrastructure creates more efficiencies. We know it reduces carbon. But what it's also doing is reducing cost because with recycled water, if half of your water is coming, or more than half of your water is coming from recycled water, it's going to be cheaper. Mm. It's going to be um, less money you have to pay on your bills. And with energy, if you've got more efficient energy systems to heat and cool your um, homes and your workplaces, then you're going to pay less for your bills. So, um, and the reason why I'm talking about that is that to make this shift to 21st century infrastructure, which is what Flo's trying to do, we want to do things differently. Um, we need, it has to be cost effective and there has to be benefit beyond green for the communities because not everyone understands the conversations around resilience. Um, and one of the things that we're really um, excited to do in Sydney particularly is to stop ocean outfall because here you've got systems that are 100 years old, centralised water systems, that literally pump in water and pump it out to sea. The benefits of having a microgrid over a community is that you can control remotely different pieces of infrastructure. When people are out, you can coordinate their lighting, you can coordinate um, their essential services so that they're reducing um, as much energy as possible. And one final thing I was going to say is that part of what utilities of the future need to think about is how do we reconcile old systems of selling water and selling energy, like more is good, because more isn't good. Actually, what we want is less is good. So coming up with business models that can um, survive and work off selling less is one of the big challenges, I think, for utilities in a sustainable world. Well, for listeners in Melbourne, they might not have seen this building. It's a very beautiful building. It's covered in greenery, you know. Know, this uh, on a, um, very interesting that the plants there seem to be growing right out of every orifice of the building. But how many people live there? And there's shops downstairs. Are there? How many people really use that building? Yeah, so ten thousand people will be interacting with the building. Seven and a half thousand um, coming in and out each day, and four thousand living there. So you've got quite a big mixed community. And you're right, it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, the green walls are designed by Patrick Blanc, who's a French designer, and they pour down the sides of the building, and it really is a a wonderland to walk through. So it's good, you know, as a model. I think these, these things, people need to see something in action, don't we? And so we're now talking about the innards of this building and how the model of uh, it works. Now, I'd like to go on now to thinking about local government because previously, um, you know, a lot of people on this program we've interviewed seem to despair of federal government and state government, but local government seem to be taking a lot of action in this area. And uh, certainly around the world, they want to build resilience because cities are, you know, really in the firing line of climate change. Uh, what sort of regulations are needed to enable these microgrids, these sort of self-contained systems, to become the norm? Right, so you're right, cities do need to be more resilient and it is a challenge that we face. We believe that precinct servicing with microgrids and sustainable infrastructure like recycled water and, and, and locally generated energy controlled through microgrids as well is um, the way to make communities resilient and that's because you create local secure water supplies, you create local generation of energy that's not required on, on large transmissions and also the costs are less because you don't need big trunk infrastructure to pump water out to sea or to bring in energy. You don't need to upgrade transmission stations and treatment plants. So there's huge um, financial savings for cities. I'm talking to Lisa McLean. She works with the disruptive company uh, called Flow. They work with uh, building developers like Brookfield to create precinct-wide energy efficiencies. And 
I'd like to know how the national energy market, which at the moment is full of coal and gas, can make a transition to locally generated clean energy like rooftop solar as well as from distant wind farms and solar plants. The network charges at the moment make it very expensive for a new precinct to generate its own energy to the grid and then get energy back from the grid when it needs it. The network costs are huge. So over to Lisa. So the regulatory changes uh, will be essential, essential as we green our NEM. And what we have at the moment um, in Australia is a, is a NEM that's dominated with um, non-sustainable energy. And the transition point is really hard. So what we're arguing um, to the regulators for, and we're working in partnership with the City of Sydney and City of Parramatta and other cities, is to um, provide more um, revenue streams for locally generated energy. I mean, I think it's as simple as that. Mm. Um, at the moment, it, uh, the cost structures aren't there to put in decentralised energy, you really need to, to go off-grid or you need to go under exemptions in order to afford to put in the infrastructure but the, because the, the costs are too great um, to pay for network charges. And this is so this is a, a really big part of what we're pushing for. Okay. Well, the other project that we heard about, this first one, uh, Central Park, is a massive inner-city building um, or series of buildings, but the suburban project called Huntley looked much more what people used to in the local suburbs very leafy, it, it seemed to have provoked a lot of innovation from the talk and it overcame a lot of challenges. And I'd like, I think many listeners will already have solar panels on their roof and they're now thinking about so, um, power storage. You know, we heard also a talk from Tesla and battery storage and all the different types of batteries. Listeners will know lots more about them than me. But um, would you talk about these whole communities? Do you see them as being totally independent of the grid or as a sort of a benefit to the grid or if, whichever one you answer, what do you see as the rules of engagement with the traditional suppliers of power and water? Because, you know, it seems like this word disruption also consists, suggests conflict. Yeah, and you're right. I think it is challenging because you've got businesses whose, um, whose economic model has been based on centralised structures and systems for a long time. So it is threatening and, change, and, and there is a bit of conflict and disagreement. Look, the story of off-grid and on-grid, I think, is um, it's actually both. So, as I mentioned before, flow has an aspiration to be climate positive, and to be climate positive, we need to be able to export water and energy. Um, and that's something that Germany and other countries have achieved very well in setting up, um, um, you know, f proper feed-in tariffs and structures to allow uh, businesses and, all, and families and anyone, really, just to connect to NEM and, and get revenue out of the generation of energy. So, I I think that's what everyone wants, but in this short period, it's really hard, as I said before, to make a cost the cost stack up because the network charges and fees are so extensive to set up a community like Huntley, for, for example, and others, which are you know, close to or over 7,000 uh, uh, people. So, in the short term, we would be off grid, and we're looking at off grid um, uh, ways in which we can generate local energy through battery storage, gas, um, solar, even geothermal, micro geothermal at a house level um, and then as we develop and the NEM gets and the rule changes that we talked about before come into place then we're going to get better money um, to actually connect to the grid and then it's a, it's another more exciting story too because we can start to export so those community utilities can start to
to get greater dividends and returns for the money they generate for the energy they're generating. And I think that's really an ideal situation, but how we get there is going to be painful. Mm-hmm. It's going to require change. It's going to mean that some businesses are no longer viable, um, and it also means there'll be a transition period. So that's how we see it. I can see your company has a global reach, and the first image we saw was a, all this sort of electronic activity right around the world, and I know it's all very digital. How can world cities, and I'm thinking of India, China, uh, Bangkok, you know, world cities, not just... Europe and America and Australia, but how can they achieve these efficiencies without too much pain? Because, you know, these disruptions do shove out a lot of people and and they're hanging on, they're fighting to the death, I feel, in a lot of ways. So how can this uh, global thing uh, roll out? Right. Well, I think, again, it's not just going to be the private sector. A lot of it needs to be government-led. And I actually think there's some really phenomenal leadership in cities at the moment. In fact, I would argue that cities, more than federal governments and state governments, are on the forefront of making this change because they see how important the transition to 21st century infrastructure is for livability, productivity and all these things. The C40 Cities Partnership is remarkable. So it's been going for over 10 years now and it's actually there's 80 cities it's not just 40 but they are looking at mega cities so that cities over four six million Mm -hmm. and what they're doing is sharing best practice and knowledge and within each city they're trying to catalyze the low carbon economy so they're working with financial institutions and they're working with companies like ours Mm -hmm. to drive change but the fact that they're sharing their policy platforms and that's what the city of Sydney has done and the city of Melbourne they're both um, partners to the C40 cities and in fact, they've also been members of the climate positive uh, cities as well. So they're looking at a group of cities that are really looking at net carbon outcomes, which is really exciting. And to know that Australia is up there in global leadership is really, really, really positive. But you do need um, more than just the private sector. You, you really need to see leadership from cities in their plans, even if their plans aren't mandating outcomes but are setting targets. It's a really fantastic start and it really does catalyse um, new thinking and approaches. Lisa McLean from Flow, which is a Brookfield company, and we'll put some links to them up on our website. You're listening to 3CR Radio. So we've been hearing about big companies today. Alinta, who has got out of coal-fired power in South Australia. AGL, who is prepared to stay in coal-fired power until 2050. Because they can, and in leaky gas near Camden, where they are continually facing angry crowds and maybe shareholder protests, and finally the future, where Flow is embracing the opportunity involved in moving away from carbon. Thanks to Lisa McLean, Jeff Dimery, and at the rally Pip Heinemann, Joseph Sane, Sakulu, Julie Lyford, Dr Helen Rudman, Uncle Charles Madden, and Camden resident Melinda Wilson. The team this week has been Teddy, Jody, and Roger, Vivian Langford, who produced the show, and my name is Andy.